Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to The Trading Floor, where I'm going to give you a quick summary of the highlights of the week in global markets. We're going to talk predominantly about central banking updates after major speeches were delivered from all of the heads of the likes of the Bank of England, the ECB and the Fed. Also going to talk a little bit about US economic data surprises and what that means for general market perception of further rate rises in the US. And then we're going to talk about bank stress tests briefly, and namely one bank in particular, which is raising a few eyebrows. Then after that, I have a guest on the call who's going to join me and is going to tackle some questions about investment bank applications. But more wider than that, we're going to talk about applications in general. So whether you're interested in private equity, trading roles, you name it, there's some excellent tips at the end of the episode and also a really cool tracker that if you're a student, you cannot live without, honestly, I promise you. And we're going to be sharing that link with this episode. So let me kick things off. And yeah, no Stephen. I think he's actually cycling in the south of France right now as we speak. Um, And then Piers is busy with a client on site. So I'm just going to give you a very quick kind of wraparound of global markets, starting with leaders of the world's top central banks. This week, they reaffirmed that they think further policy tightening will be needed to tame stubbornly high inflation. But they still believe, at least touchwood for now, that they can achieve that without triggering an outright recession. So looking at these in a little bit more detail in the different kind of geographic regions, the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell kept consecutive interest rate hikes on the table, while ECB President Christine Lagarde cemented expectations for a ninth consecutive rise in Eurozone rates in July. And that came irrespective of the fact that IFO business climate indicator for Germany fell for the second consecutive month. That actually came out at 88.5 in June, the lowest that we've seen since last December and well below market expectations. In manufacturing, obviously the key component of their economy, the business climate deteriorated substantially and expectations saw a significant decline falling to their lowest level since November of 2022. So a real rock and a hard place for the ECB. Confidence is uh, diminishing, but inflation still remains a key objective for them to get on top of So they're still signaling they're going to hike at this point in time. Elsewhere, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said he would do what is needed to bring down persistent price growth in the UK. And even the governor of the Bank of Japan opened the door to one day abandoning its ultra easy policy. So tightening still the kind of main theme here. But in terms of global markets, definitely US yields uh, have reacted to something else away from that almost continuity of central banking speeches was data. The final reading of US Q1 GDP this week was revised up to 2%, up dramatically from 1.3% reported in the second estimate one month ago, and up almost 100% from the 1.1% initially in Q1 GDP report published two months ago. To give that a bit of context, 
GDP data in the US comes out three times, you get an advanced, a preliminary, and a final reading. Generally speaking, this is more of a refinement process of the data over that period. The final reading very rarely sees much movement. That's what made this so spectacular for markets. The number was two sigma beat to consensus expectations of 1.4%. That's the biggest outlier to the third GDP estimate in over a decade. Uh, a testament just how unexpected that release was. And yeah, Treasury yields rose quite sharply, as did the dollar. And that really dented things like Treasury prices uh, and also Euro dollar and cable weighed upon in the FX market as well. Equities, though, hang tough, as they always do. The Nasdaq still pretty close to its highs. The S&P, in fact, as I record this, is, is still rallying. We're trading at 44.41 at the moment. No stopping that freight train for now. Um, but I guess what does all this data mean? That that growth number out of the US also came alongside the first time unemployment claims uh, or first time unemployment claims also undershot expectations. And that's quite key because unemployment claims were trending in a, uh, I guess, the direction of possibly showing some signals of um, trouble on the horizon on the job front. But that number dropped quite dramatically as well, which is more of a positive sign, again, for uh, generally speaking, for Fed rate rises going forward. So federal funds rate futures now, they price an 87% probability of a rate hike from the FMC at the next meeting. That's on the 26th um, of July, with a 33% chance now priced in of a second rate hike by year end. So definitely the rates market feeling that, the equity market still largely brushing that aside, at least for now. And then in more specific stock news, according to the FT, Bank of America is bearing the cost of decisions made three years ago to pump the majority of 670 billion US dollars in pandemic era deposit inflows into debt markets at a time when bonds traded at historically high prices and low yields. The move leaves Bank of America, and Bank of America is the second largest US bank by assets, with more than $100 billion in paper losses at the end of the first quarter. The sum far exceeds, exceeds unrealized bond market losses reported by its largest peers. The differing results reflecting strategies that were effectively undertaken early in COVID-19 pandemic, when banks absorbed a flood of deposits from savers, and Bank of America put more money into bonds while others parked a greater share into cash. Now that yields have risen and bond prices have fallen, the value of Bank of America's portfolio has plunged. Sounds a little bit reminiscent of SVB here. Um, but contrast, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, the nation's first and third largest banks respectively, each had about $40 billion in unrealized bond losses, while the fourth largest Citigroup's paper losses were just 25 billion. Again, BAML's four times larger than that. So yeah, quite interesting. It hasn't knocked their share price. These are paper losses. Um, but yeah, definitely just given the context of the um, stress tests that we've had as well, I thought it'd be an interesting one to highlight on this episode. But sticking with that banking theme, the largest US banks would lose $541 billion in a hypothetical doomsday economic scenario, but still have more than enough capital to absorb those losses. 
This was according to the annual stress test conducted by the Federal Reserve. So I guess first things first, what is a stress test? Well, from a technical perspective, the Fed stress tests are an annual exercise required under post-financial crisis Dodd-Frank financial regulations that gauge whether a bank's loss-absorbing capital ratios would remain above minimum requirements in the event of an economic catastrophe. So when you see headlines run, as you probably have seen uh, this week, about doomsday scenarios, media does definitely pump that narrative. But just to be clear, a stress test is lots of different uh, types of economic uh, variants. So there'll be positive outcomes, base outcomes, and a, a kind of scaling to negative doomsday scenario outcome. Obviously, the doomsday one is the least probable, but it's the one that creates all the kind of sexy headlines where it's like, if this happened, the impact on markets obviously would be quite severe. Summary, the idea here is that banks have passed. I guess the next thing of that is then, well, what does that mean? Well, the news, as I said, was very much expected. But what it means is that the results help determine how much capital banks have to hold in the next 12 months. And as long as banks match or exceed the requirements, they're free from Fed restrictions on how much capital they can put towards shareholder, um, dividends, stock buybacks, uh, and the like. So they are important for that purpose in terms of, again, as an investor managing their share price going forward. All right, so that is kind of the main takeaways of the week. But as I said, I do have a guest on the call, Mitesh from the wider Amplified team. How's it going, Mitesh? Yeah, it's going well, Anthony. How are you doing? Yeah, very, very well. And yeah, just given the fact that we are currently running our um, summer analyst training program. And as ever, the students are super keen to ask questions about applications and and so on. I thought I'd get you on because I know that, you know, you've been with Amplify for some time, <laughs> working alongside me in particular, and you've graduated now from LSC. Uh, and you've had over the years, you know, lots of kind of success, at least in securing offers and you're going to be leaving us to join a trading role in September as well. So I thought you were the best person to bring in to maybe pass on some advice from your own experience. So yeah, maybe we could run through some of your top tips. Yeah, so top tips. I guess my number one top tip is I see a lot of students that, including friends, that just go on to apply to all the firms that they see, but they end up just using the same CV for every role. So whether they're applying for consulting, trading, investment banking, doesn't matter. They all apply with just one CV. Now, the problem with this is that when you're applying to like three or four different roles, your bullet points on your CV need to be tailored for what you're applying to. And when you just have one CV, there is no way that you're tailoring for that specific role. So what I do is that for the different roles I apply to, I have different versions of my CV. And it gets to the point where for every single firm I apply to, I have a slightly different CV. So I do my research on what the role is, what you actually do in the role, and try and tailor my CV to include bullet points that match that role. And this just maximizes your chance of making sure you get through that initial CV checks and actually get through to the later stages. And then top tip number two, make sure that you apply to the firm that you're interested in within ideally the first week of when the application opens. 
And this is really useful just because when you're applying to some of these big banks that receive hundreds of thousands of applications for every role that they apply to, if you're not applying, if you're not one of the first ones to apply to that role, you're not even, they're not even going to look at your CV or look at your application just because they don't have the time to do that. So it's paramount that you get your application in as early as possible. And I guess this ties in with talking about the tracker, which we'll get onto. So I'll leave that for now. But just make sure that you get in your application within that first week of when the role opens. And then top tip number three, online tests. So everyone thinks that online tests, oh, they can't be too difficult. Um, what are they going to ask me about for, apart from basic maths? And that's where a lot of people get it wrong. What you find is that they're incredibly time pressured. So what it means is that when you're put in that pressure situation, even if it's the most basic maths questions or any sort of verbal reasoning questions, you do struggle to finish the test and do well on them. So what I'd say is just practice them as much as you can. Wherever you can practice, make sure you go and practice. So useful websites that I end up using were uh, Graduate First and Job Test Prep. They have some great free resources, but there are other websites out there that have really low cost um, resources as well. Whatever kind of works for you, make sure you go out and practice as many of those online tests before applying to all of these firms. Just because even if you have the best kind of interview skills, best assessment center skills, if you can't get past that first online tests, you can never showcase what you have. And even if you should or and deserve to land some of these top roles, you just never get the opportunity to showcase yourself. So just make sure that you practice as much as you can with online tests. And then top tip number four that I have is that when you get onto the interview stage, make sure you help yourself as much as possible by trying to actually find out who your interviewer is. If you can find out who your interviewer is, have a look at their LinkedIn profile, for example, you can find out what they've been doing, what sectors they've been working in, what their common interests are. And you need to try and match yourself so that you can gel with the interviewer when you're there. So what I found is in all of my successful applications, they've been successful because I've had more of a conversation with the interviewer. I've been able to find common uh, points of interest that we both have and end up talking about them rather than talking about some of the harder questions. While it's important to have a balance between talking about the harder technical questions, it's equally as important that you're a good fit for the company. And the best way the interviewer kind of assess that is how they kind of talk with you, how they have a conversation with you. So it's important that you can find common points of interest to talk about as that will maximize your chance of getting through kind of interview rounds. And then finally, top tip number five is that time management becomes very difficult when you're applying to 50 different firms. So what I initially did was that I applied to kind of every firm I saw as soon as I saw it. And that meant that I received about 15 different firms telling me to do online tests or online interviews at the same time. And when you're a university student and you've got coursework, um, assessments coming up at university, and you've got 15 other online tests to do, you just cannot do them. And you end up losing out on a whole bunch of opportunities that you probably should have progressed through. So what I'd say is that you do need to be somewhat selective in the timing of your applications. So if you see 15 different firms apply open at the same time that you want to apply to, pick out maybe your top five, apply to them first, and then maybe a week later, apply to some of the others, just so that you don't get overwhelmed with 
a bunch of kind of emails coming through about, oh, you need to do this test, you need to do this interview. So just be a bit selective and be cautious about how many firms you apply to at the same time. I know that everyone's keen about applying to as many as possible to maximize their chance, but it does get to a point where you need to be selective just so that you're not overwhelmed. But I guess that kind of wraps up a very quick overview of my top five tips that I have for students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was awesome. So let me just um, let me just recap that. So number one, tailoring CV specifically to the role. Yeah. Number two, apply in the first week an opportunity opens or as soon as possible to, when it opens. Three, online testing. Practice makes perfect, it sounds like. Four, trying to find out who's interviewing you ahead of time, get as much intel so you feel as comfortable with that person as possible, and then time management to avoid being overwhelmed. Okay, exactly. so where, where does the tracker fit in then? Tell me a little bit more about how, because we're going to share the tracker in the footnote of this episode. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, if you scroll down, um, not only will you be able to access where you can sign up for our free daily newsletter, which Mitesh helps me write every day. Um, you can sign up for a, a practical uh, finance accelerator simulation. And also we're going to drop the link to this tracker. So tell me about the tracker, Mitesh. Yeah. So I guess the first question that everyone has when they hear the word tracker is what, what is that? And why is it even useful to me as a student? The first thing is that the application tracker gives you pretty much the top 150 firms in finance that you can pretty much track when they open, when they close their applications, and a lot of information about the application process, what online test platforms they use, um, what kind of interview stages they have. And then they also go on to include um, certain people that you can reach out to that have success in landing roles at all of these top firms. And you can directly contact them to ask kind of any questions that you have about the application process or the role. Um, so it's kind of your one-stop shop that you can go to to make sure that you stay on top of applications. And personally, for me, I've been using this tracker throughout my entire kind of application career, I guess you could say. And what it means is it just makes it so much easier to stay on top of what's happening with applications. Just because when you've got university, which takes up a lot of your time, it becomes really difficult to personally or independently go and find out when all of these top firms are opening applications. And this is what I was saying about taking the legwork out of application, just because you need to make sure your application gets in within that first week. So what this does is pretty much does it for you. So all you need to do is go onto the tracker, have a look at when these all these firms are opening their applications and that immediately allows you to see oh I see this firm's opening in two weeks and I see the second firm is opening in three weeks so then you can actually plan out when you need to apply to these firms make sure you get your CV prepared before and it's already ready to go so it's just a quick 10 minute job as soon as the application opens and it just means that you can end up applying to 50 60 70 firms if that's what you're doing um, when everyone else would just be struggling to even apply to like 10 or 15. It just takes the legwork out of the whole kind of research process just because it does everything for you pretty much. Um, and what's better is that it doesn't matter what stage at university you're at, just because it covers spring weeks, first year summer internships, second year summer internships, graduate roles, off cycles, 
industrial placement. So regardless of what kind of role you're looking for, it covers the full lot just so that you can just go onto the tracker, click on whichever tab you're applying to, and you immediately get a list of 100, more than 100 different firms, the industries they're working in, and pretty much all the information that you need um, to get you started with applying straight away. Yeah, I think that's awesome because the spring week, I always feel like when first year starts, they're a little bit naive. And so the fact that they can see that list and it's there from day one of your university career, I know that sounds daunting. You're just literally starting as an 18 year old. But if you can get on that kind of on that right track early, you're in a really solid place then to secure then the next roles beyond that in the summer and the grad and so on. Then the other ones I get asked a lot of questions about is uh, off cycle and the placement years, the 12 month industrial placements. And people always find that really hard to find a centralized place of where those opportunities are and where and who offers them. So yeah, I mean, look, hats off to you, to the LSESU Business Investment Group. What an amazing tool. So happy that we're collaborating with them on this. And, you know, this isn't just for LSE people at all. You know, the thing that I'm so kind of proud of with them and, and that relationship is that they're sharing this to the world. And that's great. Let's just help every student as much as possible. All right. Thank you, Mitesh. Uh, thank you very much for those tips. That was brilliant. I'm sure um, I'll, I'll share when I post this episode, your LinkedIn. So I'm sure you don't mind people connecting with you. Um, and then, yeah. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Mitesh. Thank you, Anne.